Chapter 20, Part 1 Baghdad Burns Summer to Fall, 2006 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 20 Baghdad Burns Summer to Fall, 2006, page 569. In the weeks following the Samara Mosque bombing, General George W. Casey Jr. had believed the violence that followed the attack would subside, especially as a result of combined security operations, the seating of the new Nuri al-Maliki government, and the June 7th death of al-Qaeda in Iraq or AQI leader Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. As the new Maliki government began to organize itself in the early summer, the coalition's victory against AQI's top leadership would prove short-lived. By the early summer, violence in central Iraq was increasing steadily. Operations' scales of justice had been insufficient to halt the killing, both because of a flawed concept and because the Iraqi government had not managed to reinforce the Iraqi Security Forces, or ISF, in Baghdad as it had agreed to do. What slowly dawned on coalition leaders in the summer of 2006 was that Baghdad had descended into a self-sustaining cycle of communal violence, part of a larger conflict in which Shia and Sunni militants attempted to cleanse the population of the opposite sect from vital terrain inside and around the city. The promising election period of December 2005 had given way to one of the worst years in Baghdad's modern history. Tactical Response in Baghdad, Operation Together Forward, page 569. As the situation in central Iraq worsened through the spring and early summer, Multinational Force Iraq, or MNFI, looked to reduce violence while continuing its planned withdrawal. While Operation Scales of Justice had failed to achieve its goal of reducing violence in Baghdad during the politically uncertain government formation period of April and May, coalition leaders believed a renewed security operation under the newly seated government of Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki had much better chances of success. Accordingly, as Casey prepared in early June to return to Washington to brief President George W. Bush and the National Security Council, or NSC, principals on the Iraq campaign's progress, Maliki and his coalition counterparts announced a new phase of the Baghdad security plan. On June 14th, the Prime Minister declared that Operation Together Forward would commence immediately following the conclusion of Scales of Justice. In all, nearly 50,000 troops in 48 Iraqi and coalition battalions would take part. 13 Iraqi army battalions, 25 Iraqi national police battalions, and 10 coalition battalions comprised of 21,000 Iraqi police, 13,000 Iraqi national police, 8,500 Iraqi army soldiers, and roughly 7,200 coalition forces. These troops would aim to implement a clear-hold-build concept in Baghdad, with the Iraqis in the forefront and assigned the most difficult tasks. While coalition forces partnered with Iraqi troops would clear Baghdad neighborhoods, the Iraqi police were expected to hold the cleared areas and the Iraqi ministries and local governments to build with coalition assistance. MNFI's guidance for the operation emphasized transitioning authority to the Iraqis, directing coalition forces to, quote, 
accelerate the transition from scales of justice to Iraqi police-led interim provincial authority to enable the continued formation of the government of Iraq, end quote. The operation envisioned an end state in which Iraqi police forces would lead security operations in the Karada Peninsula and begin to take the lead in Rusafa, Atamiya, Sadr City, and New Baghdad. Operation Together Forward also involved the implementation of emergency anti-terrorism and weapons control laws. Security measures included an increased number of checkpoints and patrols, a citywide nighttime curfew, and targeted raids against terrorist networks. It became apparent throughout the summer, however, that the Iraqis lacked the capacity for either holding or building, especially with the police force and ministries that were themselves embroiled in the sectarian war. While some Iraqi forces were capable of clearing and holding territory, they tended to lack the will to do so in areas where the troops had no sectarian, tribal, or political ties. On the ground in Baghdad, Operation Together Forward focused on Sunni and mixed-sect neighborhoods suspected of being support zones for AQI and other Sunni militants. Under Maliki's instructions, the predominantly Shia national police were charged with leading the security initiative, while the Iraqi army and coalition forces played supporting roles. Operation Together Forward was typified by large-scale clearing operations that yielded little intelligence, roiled the population in Baghdad's Sunni neighborhoods, and largely ignored areas controlled by Shia militias such as Sadr City and Sha'ab. As Sunni areas were cleared, they were often left without any lasting security arrangements so that, in many cases, the local Iraqi inhabitants were under greater danger of sectarian killings after U.S. forces had cleared an area than before. Ten days into the operation, an MNFI periodic review noted that, quote, Sunni citizens continue to fear MOI, or Ministry of the Interior, JAM, or Jaysh al-Mahdi, and Badr death squads. High-profile intimidation incidents continue. JAM continues assassinations. Atamiya, Dora, Mansur, still key areas of violence, end quote. Media coverage had caught on to the ineffectiveness of the operation, MNFI officers noted, with, quote, civil war, end quote, replacing the term reconciliation in most reporting, and numerous reports concluding that, quote, the Baghdad security plan is failing and not protecting, end quote. In addition to Operation Together Forward's lopsided focus on Baghdad's Sunnis, Serious shortcomings in the ISF's performance quickly emerged, especially as the operation settled into a system of checkpoints across the city. In East Baghdad, Colonel Thomas Vale's 4th Brigade 101st Airborne Division noted that police checkpoints, quote, required constant supervision, end quote, and that, when attacked, national police outposts tended to respond by firing outward in all directions in a, quote, death blossom, end quote, without discriminating among their targets. The Iraqi police seemed willing to emplace checkpoints, but in some cases these became places to identify Sunnis for killing. Iraqi police also searched mosques that they believed to be insurgent safe havens and weapons caches. Mosque searches were considered a critical metric for MNFI throughout Operation Together Forward, and one that MNFI spokesmen frequently cited. However, as Vale later recounted, Mosque searches by the Iraqi police while coalition forces waited outside rarely produced results, and only, quote, with rare exception were we able to trust the results of a mosque search, end quote. 
The Shibboleths of Baghdad The technical deficiencies of Operation Together Forward were many, but there were other important reasons for the security forces' failure to stem the violence in Baghdad. First and foremost, the violence by summer 2006 was intercommunal, with various neighborhoods and suburbs of the capital in a chaotic state of sectarian war. Baghdad's nine districts were battlefields on which Sunni insurgents and Shia militias preyed upon each other's populations. The city's civilians were caught between two warring sides, with sectarian violence altering their daily lives during what became the deadliest summer of the Iraq War. One early sign of the sectarian violence was the appearance of what Iraqis called the Medjool, unidentified bodies that were dumped into the Tigris River or left in vacant lots in contested neighborhoods, such as Dora. By mid-2006, parts of the river had become a graveyard as murder victims were dumped in the river and left to float downstream. Those found downstream were often stripped of identification, blindfolded, handcuffed, or with gunshot wounds to the head. Local police in the town of Suwaira, south of Baghdad, reported in fall 2006 that they had collected 339 bodies of men, women, and children from the river since January 2005, but that number likely represented just a fraction of the dead. Quote, We used to fetch them out, one local fisherman told reporters, but now there are so many we leave them. Otherwise, there would be no time for fishing. End quote. In early May, Iraqi President Jalal Talabani announced that more than 1,000 Iraqis had been killed in Baghdad alone during the previous month, signaling that the capital had become the most violent place in Iraq. MNFI officers began using the term extrajudicial killing, or EJK, to label the wave of largely sectarian murders and death squad activities sweeping Baghdad throughout the spring and summer of 2006. As the number of these killings mounted, Casey began receiving regular updates from his staff on this new category of violence. MNFI analysts quickly discovered that a great deal of the killing was being carried out by Shia militia groups that operated either with impunity or with the tacit approval of the local police. In one instance in May, a coalition unmanned aerial vehicle, or UAV, recorded militia members in the act of carrying out extrajudicial killings at a JAM compound in Baghdad, and Casey thought the incident important enough to show newly appointed Prime Minister Maliki as evidence that his government needed to rein in the militia. Maliki, after viewing the videotape and demurring for several days, asked Casey not to raid the JAM compound and not to release the tape publicly arguing that doing so would, quote, start a sectarian conflict and make it worse than it is now, end quote. Having tracked the rise of these types of murders over the course of the three months following the Samara bombing, Casey's staff reported on May 23, 2006, that they were having an impact on the overall security situation. For many Baghdadis, the most dangerous locations in the city were the many checkpoints the police and army had in place as part of the Baghdad security plan. In some instances, Iraqi security forces allied with JAM used the checkpoints to divert Sunnis to secondary checkpoints manned by militia death squads on side roads or behind concrete walls where Sunnis could be abducted or shot. A similar system of false checkpoints for purposes of abducting and murdering Shia Baghdadis sometimes sprang up in Sunni areas of the capital and the surrounding belts. As the danger from the checkpoints grew, 
many of Baghdad's residents began employing dual identities just to get around the city. Commuters began carrying two sets of identification cards, one with Shia information and the other with Sunni information, that would allow them to pass through the ISF or militant checkpoints they were sure to encounter on their way. Parents also began instructing their children to carry two different identity cards, complete with backstories for each identity, to give to police or militants who might stop them on their way to school. Baghdadis who traveled throughout the city by car even learned to play Sunni or Shia music or to hang Sunni or Shia symbols from their car mirrors as they moved through different neighborhoods. Throughout the early summer of 2006, Sunni suicide bombers continued to target Shia mosques and markets in Baghdad and beyond. On June 2nd, a suicide bomber, probably dispatched by AQI, killed 33 people in Basra, demonstrating that the terrorist group was capable of reaching Iraq's far south. Back in Baghdad on June 17th, a suicide bomber with explosives hidden in his shoes attacked the Baratha Mosque just before Friday prayers, killing about 10 people and wounding dozens more in the second major attack against the mosque in two months. According to Major General Mehdi Garawi, a notorious national police commander in the capital, the bomber had detonated a suicide belt while praying among other worshippers. Following the attack, the mosque's leader, Jalaluddin Sagir, a senior member of the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, placed the blame on AQI members he claimed were targeting leading Shia clerics in order to, quote, restore some respect after the killing of al-Zarqawi, end quote. Despite the massive security crackdown in the city as part of Operation Together Forward, Attacks on Shia mosques, holy sites, and neighborhoods became part of daily life as AQI and its supporters waged a bloody sectarian war in Baghdad's streets. The Iranian Regime's Destabilizing Role Another major factor complicating operations like Together Forward was the fact that the Iranian regime was playing a destabilizing role in Baghdad and central Iraq. In the months after the Samara Mosque bombing, evidence mounted of the Iranians' involvement in promoting Shia on Sunni sectarian violence and in prosecuting attacks against U.S. troops. The situation was problematic enough for General John Abizade to write Secretary of Defense or SecDef Donald Rumsfeld on May 8, 2006, about the extent of Iranian involvement in anti-coalition violence a report that Rumsfeld shared with Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and National Security Advisor Stephen J. Hadley the following day. An increasingly concerned Casey was determined to share this knowledge with Maliki so the new prime minister could be persuaded to do something to stop it. Casey concluded that the Iranians had two goals in Iraq. First, to establish a friendly government by providing political, economic, and security assistance to Iraqi Shia allies, and second, to impose political, economic, and human casualty costs on the United States in order to deter future American military actions against Iran. Thus, the Iranian regime had an interest in conducting direct, lethal attacks against the United States, not just through Shia militant groups like JAM or the special groups, but also through the ostensibly friendly Badr Corps. MNFI believed that the Badr Corps had, in fact, been trained by Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, or IRGC, in insurgency tactics in the event that the Iraqi Shia militia might be called on to fight in a conflict with the United States or other countries. 
Casey's views were seconded by Lieutenant General Peter W. Corelli and his officers at Multinational Corps Iraq, or MNCI, who on May 13th shared with Casey their assessment that the Iranian regime was, quote, supplying weapons to militia and extremist groups, providing safe haven, allowing smuggling of weapons and terrorists, and acting in such a manner in northern Iraq that violates Iraq's sovereignty, end quote. Presenting the problem to Maliki, Casey laid out the broad lines of Iranian influence in Iraq, many of which, the MNFI commander believed, undermined Iraqi sovereignty and independence. Iranian-sponsored groups carried out lethal attacks using explosively formed penetrators, or EFP, Iranian camps trained Iraqi extremists, and the Iranians even provided some support for AQI. The Iranian regime also had a strong influence over Iraq's Shia political parties, especially SCIRI, the Badr Corps, and the Sadrists, and was also playing a role in the northern Kurdish regions and in various southern areas, such as Basra. Finally, there was an extensive deployment of the IRGC inside the country, constituting Iran's largest foreign operational presence. Despite Casey's determined efforts to convince Maliki to confront the Iranian foreign minister at an upcoming meeting, however, Maliki did little beyond privately acknowledging to Casey that Iran was conducting terrorism in Iraq. By May 24th, Casey had ordered his staff to evaluate whether the coalition should declare the IRGC CODS force a, quote, hostile force, end quote, whose members could be engaged or arrested without previously demonstrating hostile intent the same category into which AQI fell and into which JAM had fallen during the 2004 uprisings. The review was the second time in seven months that Casey had ordered the same evaluation, and it produced the same results, an ambiguous legal recommendation that would make convincing political leaders a difficult task. Corelli shared Casey's concern that the Iranian regime was apparently conducting a proxy war against his troops. Quote, at my level, what most concerns me is the Iranians' apparent active participation in killing and maiming U.S. and coalition soldiers. Evidence of the Iranian government in violence against the coalition seems to be growing, end quote. He wrote to Casey in late May, also sharing with the MNFI commander a summary of the extent of Iranian-sponsored EFP networks and the lethality of their technology. Quote, the government of Iran is pursuing a multifaceted interventionist policy in Iraq, Corelli wrote, adding that the primary purpose of their activities is to ensure that Iraqi policy is determined by a relatively weak pro-Iranian Shia-dominated Islamist government. The secondary purpose is to either accelerate the withdrawal of coalition forces or, perhaps, to keep us tied up here and bleed us white. End quote. Corelli also noted that Iran was attempting to manipulate Iraq's politics, supporting the, quote, formation of the UIA political alliance, end quote, which, quote, advocated for MNFI withdrawal, end quote. Once the UIA had come to power, the Iranian regime had, quote, increased efforts to place SCIRI and Badr members into senior leadership positions, especially in the interior ministry, end quote. As another means to garner influence, Iran had also given Iraq a $1 billion loan for reconstruction projects in Basra and provided additional funds for schools and mosques in Najaf, Karbala, and Amara. In Corelli's view, the most pressing military aspect of the problem was the Iranians' freedom of movement across the border into Iraq. 
Quote, the Iranians are in at least partial control of the borders into Iraq, either through proxies or directly, end quote, Corelli reported. Corelli cited the example of Zerbatia, where the Iranian regime controlled electricity and water to the Iraqi border crossing point that served as a gateway to the militia-controlled city of Kut. Indeed, by August, the MNFI J-2 had concluded, quote, Iran is smuggling weapons across the border near Badra in Wasit province, using Iraq Ministry of Health transport vehicles, solderist-controlled, to transport weapons throughout southern Iraq, end quote. To address this problem, Corelli proposed a redeployment of U.S. forces, unconsciously echoing the arguments Casey had made in 2005 about protecting Baghdad by moving U.S. troops to the Syrian border. Quote, I believe we should at least consider whether to adjust our own force posture to the region of the Iranian border. I believe that a big part of the security problem in Baghdad is originating outside of the city. The rat lines are coming in from both the west and the east. To help secure Baghdad, we may have to go after the problem at its source. We could, for example, put a battalion or more of U.S. forces near the eastern border or establish a screen line away from the border to backstop the Iraqi border forces. End quote. Corelli posited that tackling the Iranian border problem might even help with the coalition's Sunni insurgent problem because, quote, Sunni insurgent elements would see us addressing a key concern of theirs we might leverage a reduction in violence in the West and in Baghdad as a result, end quote. At his level, Corelli planned to take measures to, quote, immediately stanch the virtually unimpeded flow of people and materials, end quote, through the border crossing points, and to, quote, look at whether these are particularly nefarious individuals involved in providing EFP technology and expertise who we may request authority to target, end quote but these steps, quote, would only get at a part of the problem, end quote, he explained to Casey. Quote, what we most need is a comprehensive approach that would provide Iran with the necessary disincentives to continuing on their current course, inhibit their ability to achieve their objectives, and that would get the Iraqis to defend their own sovereignty, end quote. Corelli saw the issue of controlling the border with Iran as important enough to merit an internal MNCI study to explore courses of action that would address the problem. When it was briefed to him on July 8th, the study concluded that sending additional transition teams to support the Iraqi Department of Border Enforcement was not the solution, as the problem was a matter of the border guard's corruption and ulterior motives, rather than a lack of training. Instead, a more extensive coalition force presence was required to oversee the border enforcement employees and ensure they did their jobs to standard. To meet this requirement, MNCI proposed sending up to two battalions of U.S. forces, preferably motorized forces, armor, or mechanized infantry. Ideally, these forces would come from outside Iraq and deploy to the provinces of Wasit and Diyala, the areas MNCI considered most problematic. In effect, Corelli's officers were proposing to discard Casey's military transition team, or MIT-type approach, in favor of the unit-to-unit -unit partnership approach General Peter Schoomaker had advocated in 2004. Casey met with Corelli on June 14th, just before the MNFI commander was to depart for meetings in Washington, D.C. Casey generally agreed with his subordinate commander's analysis, although he made no final decisions on border security changes. In the strategic picture, 
there was little daylight between the two commanders. There were four groups that would have to be neutralized, quote, to allow the Iraqis to work out the division of power and resources in a secure environment, end quote, Casey believed. Iran, Sunni extremists, Shia extremists, and the Sunni Arab resistance. It was not at all clear, however, that the new Maliki government saw the situation the same way. Nor was it clear how far the coalition itself was willing to go to shut down the Iranian regime's proxy war. The week before meeting Corelli about the Iranian problem, Casey and his command had prepared a plan to kill or capture Cod's Force commander Qasem Soleimani, who had made his way into Iraq for at least the second time in 2006. However, the U.S. commanders had ultimately refrained from taking action against Soleimani, allowing the Iranian general to enter and exit Iraq unhindered. General Casey's Drawdown Plan Page 575 Five days after the launch of Operation Together Forward, Casey arrived in Washington for high-level meetings on the state of the Iraq campaign and discussions on the way ahead. He had left Baghdad optimistic that Together Forward and the heavier reliance on Iraqi troops to secure Baghdad would reverse the cycle of violence in the city, and his presentations in Washington reflected this optimism. In separate meetings with Rumsfeld and the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon, Casey reported that the security situation would allow MNFI to cancel the planned deployment of two American brigades to Iraq in August, resulting in a net reduction of 7,000 soldiers. Like the December 2005 decision that also canceled the deployment of two brigades, MNFI would keep one of the units, 2nd Brigade 1st Infantry Division, at a heightened alert status at its home station in Germany, but prepared to deploy. If the situation proceeded as MNFI anticipated, Casey later told the NSC principals on June 23rd, the deployment of additional brigades could be canceled, dropping the U.S. contingent to 10 combat brigades spread across only 57 bases by the end of 2006. By summer 2007, the force would be reduced further to 7 or 8 brigades and 30 bases, and eventually to just 6 combat brigades and 11 bases by the end of 2007. To justify this drawdown in the face of Iraq's escalating violence, Casey again cited growth in the size and capability of the ISF and the pending transfers of provisional control to the Iraqis. Though the drawdown would incur some risk to the coalition's mission, Casey emphasized that there were risks in not reducing coalition forces too, noting that the proposed reductions would, quote, create a sense of urgency in the Iraqi government and its security forces, end quote, and would, quote, continue to remove a central motivation attracting foreign fighters and drawing Iraqis into the insurgency, end quote. Years later, Casey would argue that the drawdown was the best possible response to the mounting violence, noting that, quote, since the fundamental problem in Iraq was over the division of political and economic power, and that this conflict was the root cause of the sectarian violence, the ultimate solution would be political and not military, end quote. In the course of events, the drawdown would be temporarily postponed until Casey and Khalilzad could discuss its details with Maliki. Yet Casey's drawdown plan leaked to the U.S. media immediately, with the New York Times publishing most of its details on June 24th, the morning after the general concluded his briefings to the NSC. The disclosure of the MNFI commander's plans to significantly reduce U.S. combat power in Iraq prompted immediate criticism from U.S. observers who were watching the spike in violence in Baghdad.
A number of prominent critics outside the U.S. government charged that Casey's drawdown plan resembled the same approach that the United States took to stop ethnic cleansing early in the Bosnian conflict. Such a plan avoided directly challenging sectarian forces and instead relied on American forces pulling back from the population, creating firebreaks to prevent the violence from spreading to surrounding countries while the country descended into full-scale civil war. American forces would only return when the ethnic fires had burned themselves out and the conflicting parties were truly ready to negotiate a cessation of violence, often after areas had been ethnically, quote, purified, end quote. The concern over ethno-sectarian cleansing rose as the civilian casualties mounted. Whereas 1,778 Iraqi civilians had been killed in January, by June the figure had risen to 3,149, a jump of 70%. One week after Casey reported to Bush at Camp David that U.S. troop withdrawals could go ahead as planned, the United Nations, or UN, estimated that 14,338 civilians had died violently across the country in the first half of 2006, with an average of 100 people dying per day in June, more than half of them in Baghdad. The False Hope of Provincial Iraqi Control, or PIC One reason for Casey's optimism about drawing down combat power was his assessment that the long-stagnant effort to improve the Iraqi political situation was beginning to show promise. MNFI had created a program, originally named Provincial Iraqi Governance, but changed to Provincial Iraqi Control, or PIC, when a staff officer noted what the original acronym would spell, to establish conditions to transfer security responsibility in the various provinces back to Iraqi control. When a province met the PIC program's specific criteria, the coalition would withdraw its combat forces from the province and then transfer authority over security matters to the local Iraqi government. Following the transfer, the Iraqi army would serve only in a supporting role, and coalition forces would move to tactical overwatch in a nearby province, ready to assist if needed. Because the Iraqi police would assume responsibility for security, the coalition stipulated that the overall threat would have to be low, and the local Iraqi police forces needed to have attained a transition readiness assessment level of 2, the level at which Iraqi forces were deemed capable of taking the lead in providing security. The PIC program also stipulated that each Iraqi province should have a stable provincial government and should create a provincial joint coordination center to oversee security operations. If the prime minister declared a crisis, Iraqi military forces and coalition forces could be called back to restore order. By June, Casey had briefed Rumsfeld that five provinces would be transferred in July, seven by August, and 13 by the end of the year. It appeared to MNFI leaders that the hard work of the provincial reconstruction teams was paying dividends and that Casey's year of the police initiative and increased police transition teams were improving the Iraqi police in several provinces. Those initial estimates proved overly optimistic. The first province would not be transferred until July 13, 2006, when Multinational Division Southeast, or MNDSE Commander Major General John Cooper, signed the Provincial Iraqi Control Agreement for Mutana Province in the provincial capital of Samawa. With the turning over of Mutana Province to the Iraqis, the 600-man Japanese military contingent that had focused on humanitarian assistance and reconstruction withdrew completely from Iraq 
closing an ironic period in the Iraq War in which British and Australian soldiers guarded Japanese soldiers building roads and bridges under the hot sun. In September, Dikar province, also in MNDSE, became the second province handed back to the Iraqis under the PIC program. By the end of 2006, only one other province had been transferred to the Iraqis, a far cry from the heady estimates made by MNFI in June. The President Loses Confidence in the Transition Strategy Throughout 2005, President Bush had supported the MNFI campaign plan to achieve what he considered the two most important U.S. goals in Iraq, protecting the United States from terrorism and fostering an Iraqi democracy. The elections of 2005 had appeared to bring progress toward Iraqi democracy, and Casey and Abizaid had bet that the formation of the new Iraqi government would begin to stabilize the country and reduce the terrorist threat as well. The president had been willing to go along with the transition plans as long as they brought progress toward these dual goals, but as the violence in Baghdad escalated, the campaign appeared to be neither reducing the terrorist threat manifested in al-Qaeda in Iraq and its allies, nor securing an Iraqi democracy. For Casey, the violence in central Iraq and the danger to the new Maliki government were unacceptable, but in his view, it remained important that the Iraqis themselves solve these problems. Assessing the situation through his Bosnia experience, in which he had concluded that Americans could not resolve someone else's intractable sectarian conflict, Casey believed a more forward-leaning U.S. intervention in Baghdad would represent a setback on the road to the ultimate goal of a self-sufficient Iraqi government. As a result, he was unwilling to use a large infusion of U.S. troops to calm the situation, believing that any gains would be short-lived and easily reversed once the American units inevitably left. For Abizaid, the prospect of more U.S. troops on the ground in Baghdad was similarly undesirable. Based on his reading of Middle Eastern history and his experiences in Lebanon in 1983, he remained convinced that foreign troops in the Arab world created antibodies against their presence. The more numerous and visible the foreign troops, the more numerous the antibodies would become. Like Casey, he also believed that Arab armies and governments were inclined to allow Western troops to perform their security tasks for them if the Westerners were willing to do so. Abizaid had long believed that the proper response to the violence in Iraq was to continue reducing the American footprint so that those militants motivated by the offending U.S. presence would stop fighting. A steady withdrawal of American personnel would also press the Iraqi government and its security forces to take responsibility for securing their own capital, in his judgment. For Rumsfeld, both Casey's and Abizade's analyses ran true, and he agreed that the ultimate way to achieve the president's goals was to encourage, cajole, or even coerce Iraqi self-sufficiency. He also added his own consideration that a heavier investment in the ground campaigns in both Iraq and Afghanistan would undoubtedly slow the effort to modernize the U.S. military into the leaner, more technologically enabled fighting force that he believed the United States would need to secure itself against threats in the decades to come. Over the course of 2006, however, Bush's assessment of the situation in Iraq diverged from the optimistic appraisals made by his generals and SECDEF. In mid-2006, many observers in Washington sensed that the situation in Iraq was going awry as sectarian violence escalated from month to month, AQI in Iran appeared to be on the rise, and Iraq's political and military elements appeared immobilized. 
The commander-in-chief's concerns first came to a head during Casey's return to the United States in early June. Speaking to military historians years later, Bush recalled that, along with the other NSC principals at Camp David on June 12th, he had listened to Casey's assessments of the Baghdad security plan and to the MNFI commander's plans to transition security responsibility to the Iraqis, but that in smaller discussions with his closest advisors, he had decided that the transition strategy was not working and that it could not work. Speaking later to NSC staffer Megan O'Sullivan in the Oval Office after she wrote a critical memo questioning the validity of the strategy, Bush had asked her how her Iraqi associates in Baghdad were faring, and the president was struck by her reply that Baghdad's population had descended into a violent nightmare in which families were afraid to leave their own homes. National Security Advisor Hadley later told military historians that he, too, had heard Casey's campaign progress report at Camp David and had come away with the conclusion that the transition strategy was no longer capable of achieving the president's goals. In a one-on-one meeting back in the White House, Hadley and Bush agreed that the transition and drawdown plans were not working, Hadley recalled. What was needed, Hadley suggested to the president, was a new approach and probably new leadership to implement it. He asked the president for authorization to proceed quietly with a review of the options for changing course and to gather information from Casey and MNFI to inform the strategy review. The president gave his approval, initiating what became a six-month process of finding a new approach to Iraq to replace the one the commander-in-chief had concluded had failed. By July 21, 2006, Hadley's review was underway, with the National Security Advisor sending Casey 50 questions inquiring about the situation in Iraq and MNFI's plans. These were questions, Hadley noted, that, quote, the president asks every day that he, Hadley, cannot answer, end quote. Rather than review all 50 questions, the somewhat frustrated Casey asked rhetorically, quote, whether the real issue wasn't whether the change in conflict meant that there needed to be a change to their strategy, end quote. More than three years into the war, the president had decided to part ways with his top officials overseeing the U.S. military campaign in Iraq. July 2006, The Sectarian Cleansing of Baghdad, page 579. The wave of sectarian killings increased further in July when more than 3,400 Iraqi civilians met violent deaths, 1,962 of them in Baghdad alone. Meeting separately with Prime Minister Maliki and with the new Iraqi Interior Minister Jawad Bolani on July 8th, Casey expressed his worry that the combined coalition ISF operations were not slowing the sectarian killings. The July death toll led both Abizaid and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Peter Pace to comment publicly on the possibility that Iraq could descend into civil war. Within MNFI, Strategic Operations Director Major General David A. Fastabend made a similar observation that where the question of an Iraqi civil war was concerned, quote, we are at least at Harper's Ferry, end quote, referring to the 1859 event involving John Brown that had presaged the coming American Civil War. Hours after Casey warned Maliki about the mounting violence, a bloody massacre confirmed his concerns. 
On July 8th, a car bomb struck the Shia Zahra Mosque in West Baghdad, and the next day, Shia gunmen retaliated by killing about 50 Sunni men, women, and children in nearby Hay al-Jihad, a predominantly Sunni neighborhood in the Rashid district, along the road to Baghdad International Airport. After setting up checkpoints along a main commercial street in the neighborhood, the gunmen had pulled Sunni Arabs from their vehicles and homes, killing them and leaving their bodies in the streets. Neighborhood residents reported seeing the victims' bodies in the streets with their hands bound behind their backs, some with gunshot wounds to their heads, others with bodies pierced by bolts and nails. In an attempt to quell the chaos, the Iraqi government imposed a daytime curfew, and by early afternoon on the same day, American and Iraqi forces had sealed off the neighborhood. Sunni leaders accused the Mahdi army of committing the killings, a charge that Muqtada Sadr deflected by calling the massacre a, quote, Western scheme, end quote, to foment, quote, a civil and sectarian war among brothers, end quote. The Hay al-Jihad massacre set off a string of bloody attacks in Baghdad. In the five days that followed, over 150 Baghdadis were killed in suicide bombings, indirect fire attacks, and shootings in various neighborhoods of the capital, including attacks on police patrols and checkpoints. The sectarian violence spread beyond Baghdad as well. On July 18th, in the Sadrist stronghold of Kufa, adjacent to Najaf, a Sunni suicide bomber lured a group of Shia day laborers into his van and then detonated the vehicle killing 53 people and wounding 100 in one of the deadliest attacks of the year. When policemen arrived at the scene, bystanders pelted them with stones and demanded that JAM take over security of the city. While sectarian violence played out across Baghdad, the composition of its nine districts underwent a significant transformation. By the end of the summer, Baghdad's once-mixed Sunni-Shia neighborhoods had become far more segregated along sectarian lines. The gradual displacement of Baghdad's population into sectarian enclaves had been taking place practically since the fall of the regime, but this process accelerated after the Samara mosque bombing in February 2006. West of the Tigris, Huria and Washash went from mixed sect to almost wholly Shia in population. East of the river, the neighborhoods of Sha'ab and Hay al-Basatin also went from mixed sect to predominantly Shia, while the Shia-majority neighborhoods of 9th Nisan and Rustamiya lost their Sunni minorities completely. In turn, the majority Sunni Amariya and Ghazaliya on the west side of the city lost nearly all of their Shia residents, while al-Jihad and Dora went from mixed sect to majority Sunni. In East Baghdad, the mixed-sect Fadel neighborhood became a Sunni majority, while the Sunni majority Adamiya lost its small Shia minority altogether. Meanwhile, west and south of the city, Shia were completely expelled from the Sunni majority suburbs of Abu Ghraib and Haswa. With these changes, Baghdad's demographic layout was changing virtually beyond recognition. The Yusufia Abductions in mid-June 2006, news broke that soldiers of the 1st Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division had gang-raped and killed an Iraqi girl and murdered her and her family in Mahmoudia on March 12, 2006, further poisoning Baghdad's already hostile atmosphere. On June 16, in an apparent act of retaliation, AQI fighters ambushed three U.S. soldiers manning a vehicle checkpoint near the Euphrates River. 
The ambushed soldiers belonged to the same platoon as the soldiers responsible for the march rape and murder. Hearing small arms fire from about a kilometer away, other members of the platoon arrived 25 minutes later to find one soldier's body lying face down in weeds and water near an empty HMMWV and the two other soldiers on duty that night missing. After several days of searching along the Euphrates, U.S. troops found the two soldiers' bodies bearing signs of torture about five kilometers away near the defunct Yusufia power plant in the area known as the Triangle of Death. On the day the bodies were recovered, the Mujahideen Shura Council announced the kidnapping of the two Americans, followed by a statement that the new leader of AQI, an Egyptian named Abu Ayyub al-Masri, who had worked with AQI's Ayman al-Zawahiri in the terrorist group Egyptian Islamic Jihad, had killed the two soldiers himself. In late June, Major General James D. Thurman, the commander of MNDB, ordered an investigation into the March killings. On July 9, 2006, a federal court charged four soldiers of the 1st Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment with the rape and murder of 14-year-old Abir al-Janabi and the murder of three members of her family. As the news of the incident spread in early July, a number of insurgent groups made retaliatory claims or announced revenge campaigns, calling them the, quote, Abir operations, end quote. On July 4th, JAM declared its responsibility for the downing of a U.S. Army AH-64 Apache weeks earlier and promised upcoming revenge operations in Abir's honor. On July 10th, the Mujahideen Shura Council released a gruesome video of the mutilated bodies of the soldiers AQI had captured on June 16th, with an accompanying message in which a Shura Council member claimed the group had carried out the killings as, quote, Revenge for our sister who was dishonored by a soldier of the same brigade. End quote. The following day, Jaish al Islami claimed responsibility for a suicide bombing in the Green Zone quote, as a revenge operation for the rape and slaying end quote, of a beer, killing dozens of Iraqis in the area. Abizaid and Casey reverse course. The apparent failure of Operation Together Forward to stem the sectarian killing in Baghdad in June and July 2006 was partly a result of the fact that MNFI's transition campaign plan was creating a shortage of U.S. troops needed to support the shaky Iraqi police and army in the city. Throughout the spring, Casey and Abizaid had remained committed to MNFI's drawdown plan, and Casey had continued to look for opportunities in May and June to redeploy additional brigade combat teams, or BCT, early. While he had hoped to allow the 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division Pennsylvania National Guard in Ramadi to depart without a relieving unit, Casey had no choice but to replace the brigade with Colonel Sean B. McFarland's 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division when it became clear that Anbar's capital was falling into AQI's hands. The repositioning of McFarland's brigade from Tel Afar would leave only one striker BCT in Nineveh province, recreating the conditions that had led to the province's security collapse in 2004. In Baghdad, however, Casey went ahead with a plan not to replace Colonel Jeffrey Snow's 1st Brigade Combat Team 10th Mountain Division, despite the fact that the unit was responsible for stemming the increasing violence in northwest Baghdad. The decision to replace the departing 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division with a brigade already deployed in Iraq reduced the number of brigades in the country to 14. The scheduled withdrawal of the 1st Brigade Combat Team 10th Mountain Division would bring the number of brigades to 13. 
When Snow's brigade withdrew in early August, the unit's entire area of operations fell under the responsibility of a lone reconnaissance, surveillance, and target acquisition squadron, the 8th Squadron 10th Cavalry Regiment, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel John Gentile. Beyond the dearth of coalition troops, scales of justice and together forward had cast doubt on the readiness of the ISF to take over the security missions that Casey and Abizade intended U.S. troops to stop performing. In order to continue the drawdown and transition effort, the U.S. commanders needed to find quicker ways to increase the Iraqi security forces' capabilities. In late June, Abizade dispatched CENTCOM's chief of staff, Major General Lloyd Austin, to Baghdad to determine how best to strengthen the Iraqi forces. From June 20th to July 5th, Austin and a team of CENTCOM officers dubbed the, quote, Chief of Staff Assessment Team, end quote, or COSAT, inspected the ISF development mission and optimistically concluded that MNSTCI had, quote, generated a force that within the next six months will have the capacity to completely assume the battle space and transition to Iraqi Army Lead, or IAL, up to brigade level throughout Iraq, end quote. To achieve this end state, Austin and his team concluded, Casey would need to make the MITS the coalition's main effort and take advantage of, quote, a window of opportunity to reduce the presence of coalition forces while expanding the capabilities of transition teams as behind-the-scenes combat multipliers, end quote. By mid-2006, however, it was not clear that Iraq and the U.S. mission there could afford to wait those six months. On July 11th, Prime Minister Maliki met with Senator Joseph R. Biden Jr., who told the Prime Minister that the American public was losing patience and that U.S. forces would not remain in Iraq for much longer. In a meeting with Maliki and Rumsfeld the following day, Casey laid out for the Iraqi leader his plan to reduce the coalition footprint by two brigades, a plan that U.S. leaders had agreed on in Washington in June, but had not yet socialized with Maliki. This news, coming directly on the heels of Biden's dire warning, unnerved the Iraqi prime minister about the coalition's commitment to protect his new government. Maliki was anxious that the coalition was reducing forces, particularly in Baghdad, while sectarian bloodletting continued unabated. After Rumsfeld departed, Casey attempted to reassure Maliki about the impending U.S. drawdown, telling the Iraqi leader that because the prime minister was opposed to any immediate reductions, Casey would, quote, reduce the proposal from two brigades to one, and move the additional forces into Baghdad, end quote. Having been pressed by Iraqi leaders since 2004 to hand them greater responsibility, Casey now faced the prospect of those same leaders resisting the transition plan. To restore the Iraqis' comfort with the transition, Casey and the U.S. Embassy secured Maliki's support for a U.S.-Iraqi, quote, Joint Committee for Coalition Withdrawal, end quote, which met for the first time just four days later on July 16th, with Mawafik Rubai heading the Iraqi side. Rumsfeld, however, was nonplussed when learning that the committee had included the words coalition withdrawal in its title, and in a typical snowflake, the SECDEF reminded Casey that the committee's purpose was to discuss the way forward and, quote, certainly in the current environment, end quote, both he and Hadley believed a committee focusing explicitly on withdrawal, quote, would not be good, end quote. Even as he worked to ease the Iraqi leader's concern about the departure of U.S. troops, Casey began to share the Iraqis' misgivings after another spike in AQI suicide attacks on the capital that resulted in cycles of Shia and Sunni retribution. 
June had seen 104 suicide vest attacks and 38 suicide car bomb attacks across the country, both numbers representing the highest number of attacks since October 2005. Even though the suicide bombings generated significant media attention, most of the violence in Baghdad, a stunning 93% according to MNFI statistics, was due to either murders or executions, rather than terrorist bombings. This violence, causing an average of 105 attacks against civilians a day, had been on a continuous upward trend since the elections held in December 2005. Facing a changed situation, Casey began to agree with the intelligence briefings given by Major General Richard P. Zahner, MNFI Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, that posited the conflict had shifted, quote, from a Sunni insurgency attempting to derail the political process and terminate an occupation, to a competition among social and political leaders, and to a struggle between Sunni and Shia extremists, end quote. Zahner argued that the shift had begun in February 2006 and had led to a cycle of sectarian violence in which AQI bombings triggered JAM retaliatory violence, which then prompted further Sunni reprisals, all of which undermined confidence in the Iraqi government and hurt reconciliation efforts. On July 18th, less than a week after hearing Maliki's concerns, Casey wrote in an email to Abizaid and Pace that his thoughts on force reductions had changed. Quote, I am beginning to see the retaliatory efforts by the Shia extremist groups less as tit-for-tat violence and more as a semi-organized effort to expand geographic control into Sunni areas, primarily in Baghdad, Basra, Diyala, and to a lesser extent Kirkuk, end quote, he explained. Consequently, the MNFI commander would need, quote, to keep more coalition troops here than I had originally intended to help the Iraqis through this, end quote. In the span of just over a week, Casey reversed his previous stand on troop numbers and decided to extend the deployment of the 172nd Infantry Brigade to stabilize Baghdad and Diyala, to call forward the 2nd BCT 1st Armored Division from Kuwait, and to cancel all pending plans to further reduce MNFI's force structure through the end of 2006. Casey made these changes grudgingly, noting in the same July 18th email to Abizaid and Pace that, quote, there will never be a good time for reductions until the Iraqis reconcile the past and get on with the future. I firmly believe that the longer they feel they can rely on us, the longer it's going to take them to find the political will to reconcile, which they must do for Iraq to move forward. The extra brigade will help the security situation, but it is not likely to have a decisive effect without the commitment from the political and religious leadership of Iraq to stop the sectarian killing, something they are not ready to do. I also believe that we must leverage this extension of U.S. support to press the Iraqis into reconciliation action. Otherwise, it may actually extend the conflict and our timetable by allowing them to postpone their ultimate reconciliation. End quote. In other words, Casey believed the extended presence of the U.S. military merely postponed the inevitable political reconciliation Iraqis would eventually be forced to undertake on their own. Casey's view did not seem to allow for the possibility that a withdrawal of the U.S. military might actually undermine the reconciliation he believed would ultimately happen, or that the country might break into warring fragments after U.S. withdrawal. On paper, Casey's July 2006 plan to stabilize Iraq was impressive, returning the number of brigades in Iraq to 15 and effectively reversing his December 2005 redeployment schedule. 
In reality, however, the plan had significant challenges. First, Colonel Robert Skurlock's 2nd BCT 1st Armored Division was no longer a full-strength brigade, as all three of its maneuver battalions had already been called forward, one to Baghdad in March to support Operation Scales of Justice, and the other two to Ramadi in June to reinforce Colonel McFarland's brigade. Thus, when Skurlock's brigade was ordered to Baghdad as part of Casey's plan, only his headquarters and some support elements remained to reinforce coalition troops in the capital. While this provided a badly needed brigade headquarters, Skurlock would command a hodgepodge of three battalions from three different units with which he had not trained. His cobbled-together brigade signified again that coalition planners in Iraq were misapplying the army's concept of modularity down to the battalion level. A second challenge came from the fact that the extension of the 172nd Striker Brigade came so late that nearly 400 members of the brigade had already returned home to Alaska, with even more soldiers and equipment in Kuwait waiting to redeploy. Extending the brigade meant that the redeployed soldiers needed to return to Iraq for another four months, a development that damaged morale and was deeply unpopular in the brigade's home community. After the extension, soldiers from the brigade grimly joked that Operation Together Forward had become Operation Together Forever. Nevertheless, the extension was a move that Corelli had been urging Casey to make for months, since the MNCI commander had long since reckoned he needed to bring the brigade's combat power and a large infantry contingent from Mosul to Baghdad to stabilize the capital. On August 2, 2006, a perturbed Rumsfeld wrote to Casey of his frustration over the 172nd Striker Brigade's late-breaking extension. Quote, The late request to keep the Striker Brigade in Iraq has been unfortunate. We can manage the extension, but the fact that they were already en route to Kuwait hurt. We have to do a better job looking around corners. End quote. End of Chapter 20, Part 1 Baghdad Burns, Summer to Fall, 2006. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.